almost every church that I've been a part of, as long as I can remember, has included dedicated and faithful believers whose consciences would not allow them to partake and participate in or approve of certain practices. I remember hearing elderly friends jokingly say that they were raised to believe the ditty, don't drink, smoke, or chew, and don't go out with girls who do. We saw last Sunday how the Apostle Paul described those who feel restricted, those who struggle to exercise legitimate liberty as weaker believers. And those who exercise their legitimate liberty to eat meat or celebrate certain holidays as stronger believers. But in both cases, they were identified as believers. Sometimes we want to make them them and not believers just because they disagree with us. By the way, when stronger believers out of love for the weaker brothers and sisters in the Lord voluntarily restrict their own lives to conform to those stricter standards of the weaker believers, they actually build closer relationships with each other and the church is often strengthened in that case. And in that kind of loving environment, the weaker believers are actually helped to become stronger. Last Sunday I developed for you Romans 14 verses 1 to 12 in which we saw that all responsibility does not fall on the stronger believer. Basically, Paul shared how strong and weak believers have a mutual responsibility to love and fellowship with each other and to refrain from judging the other's convictions, especially with regard to non-essentials. Those things that the New Testament neither commands nor condemns. He actually provided for us a fourfold relational foundation. Now we should be, first of all, he said, loving and accepting because God loves and accepts us. In fact, in the first th three verses of chapter 14, he basically says, welcome the one who is weak because God has welcomed or accepted them. And in verse 4 and following, he even questions why we think we have the right to pass judgment on someone else who has another master. And the one who has the right is none other than Jesus Christ. Why? Because... He died for them and for us. We've been bought with a price. We've been redeemed from slavery by the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And as a result, we have been adopted into the family as children of God. So look around. Those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who have repented of their sins, who have confessed before witnesses, and who have obediently submitted to baptism, burying the old self and rising to walk in newness of life, we have been adopted into the family. So we are brothers and sisters 
in Christ. That's why Paul will ask in verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? As Christians, we have a responsibility to discern. And we have a responsibility to confront. Especially someone who has sinned against us. That's actually where the focus is. It's not go and confront other people who are sinning. It's when somebody has sinned against you that you're to go to them one-on-one. -on -one. And then if it doesn't work, take a witness. And then if that doesn't work, bring it before the elders of the church. And if it still doesn't work, then bring it before the congregation. And if they choose not to deal with that sin that everybody up to that point's agreed with, then we're to treat them as an outsider. And I gotta admit, I think that one of the historical problems of the church over the last three decades has been that the church has not practiced church discipline. And so the world around sees people who are not living like Christians, who are sinning on a regular basis, and, and nobody is confronting them with that. And the problem with that is the fourth thing Paul says is that we're all going to stand in judgment. Verse 10 he said, for we all stand before the judgment seat of God. And in verse 12 he said, so then each of us will give an account of himself or herself to God's. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm glad that when the day of judgment comes, I won't be judged out of the books, plural. I'll only be judged as to whether or not my name appears in the book of life. Now go read it for yourself. Revelation chapter 20 verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and then another book, singular, was opened, the book of life. And that compels me to think in terms of identity. Who am I? Do you know what bothers me the most? Not that I cried yesterday, but I cried yesterday. I cried uh, at least four times. I cried when Eric came in and was walking down the aisle. I cried when I realized that Eric was probably the last relative that I will see graduate from LCU. I cried when he walked across the stage and they said highest honors and they put the fancy necklace made out of cloth. I don't know what those things are called. Uh, the hood, thank you. They put that on him. They gave him his towel. All of the master's graduates receive a towel with a commendation to go out and wash feet. But I also cried. And I'm going to do it again. I also cried when I saw the speaker come in. And when I heard it announced that Dr. John Castellane was going to be the speaker. Just 
John is one of the most brilliant men I have ever known. He graduated with his PhD from the University of Chicago Divinity School. One of the most prestigious programs in the world. He taught at Lincoln for over two decades. And one day, he walked away and said, I don't know why I ever believed that stuff. And what's gone? Gone from the church. He shared in his message, it was very autobiographical. He shared with that group how not just once, but three times he walked away like that. But each time, there was something involving the love of God that brought him back. And the most recent was the witness of his wife as she died in a period of just 22 months from ALS. The very rare kind that doesn't start from the legs and comes up, but starts from the head and comes down. And he had to care for her. He had to feed her. During the last few days, he had to bathe her. And he said one day during those last few days of her life, when he was washing her feet, the image of the statue that was in front of Lincoln Christian's Chapel of Jesus washing feet came into his mind. And he thought, that's a story that can't be made up about how somebody who was a rabbi and a t understood to be a, a, a teacher and a leader would take the role of the lowest of servants and wash the feet of those disciples knowing that Peter would deny him three times and that Judas would betray him. And he said, there was I washing the feet of my wife and thinking about how Jesus washed the feet of Peter who also would deny his Lord and Savior three times just like I did. And John told a story. He told him how when he came to the United States because he wasn't a citizen of the United States. His mom and dad were ministering in Belgium. And when he came to the United States to study at Johnson Bible College at that time, now Johnson Christian University, the dean at that time had to go and sign the paper for him to come in as a student. And he said as the dean was signing that paper, he looked at him and he said, John, do you know what's the most important signature you'll ever get? And he said right then as a young student fresh out of high school and ready to go to college, I thought, yeah, your signature on that paper so that I can get into the United States and study at Johnson. And he said he looked at me eyeball to eyeball 
And he said, the most important signature you'll ever receive is the signature of Jesus Christ on your life. And he said, I thought about how Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in and through me. So in terms of identity, do you know what bothers me the most when I think about my identity? Who I truly am? Not only the person that others see, but the person that I know myself to be? I can tell you right now, it's not the passages that I don't understand in the Bible. That doesn't bother me because I know I'm not the sharpest knife that's in the rack. What bothers me is the most are the verses that I do understand that I struggle with. Just from the book of James alone. Verse 2. Count it all joy when you face trials. I'm not always happy when I face trials. Sometimes I even want to have a pity party. And because I'm a, one of the 70s, I want to sing gloom, despair, and agony on me. <laughs> Deep down depression, excessive misery. I'm tempted to have pity parties. Instead of, like James said, count it all joy when you face trials. Or again, verse 19 of that same first chapter. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. <coughs> I, do, I don't do well on two of those. I'm pretty good at hearing, but I don't always want to wait till the person's done so I can tell them what I want to say. I start thinking about what they're saying and all of a sudden I start talking and they're not even finished yet. And I certainly am not anywhere near as slow to anger as I wish I was. Who am I, really? Paul said, the things I don't want to do I find myself doing and the things that I know I should be doing I'm not getting done. That's who I am. I am a sinner who is saved not because of anything I do, not because of anything that I do to earn my salvation. We can never be good enough. No, I'm a sinner who's saved by grace out of God's love and mercy. And so that compels me not to live for myself but to live to the Lord and to live for others. Which brings me to the image that I want us to lock on to today. Because in our text for today, twice and once again in chapter 15, we're going to come across three one another passages. In this section, as in the previous one, it's our relationship to the weak which is mainly in mind 
in spite of these three one another verses. But those verses speak of reciprocal duties between the weak and the strong. Yeah, we're to consider the needs of our sisters and our brothers. In fact, there are 89 verses in the English Standard Version of the New Testament that contain the phrase, one another. And yet the chief emphasis throughout is on the Christian responsibility of the strong towards the weak. So with this in mind, notice how Paul begins. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or in hindrance in the way of a brother. You see, as Paul begins to expound on how we can live to the Lord, he's already reminded us that it involves sacrificial love. And now he gives us five examples that we shouldn't do. No, I don't have five points to my sermon. In fact, you might think that most of the time my sermons are pointless. Uh, but five, five things... Five ways to demonstrate that we're truly living for one another. And they're actually stated in the negative. And the first one right here is, we're not to be causing another to stumble. You see, therefore, that's how verse 10 begins. Or, or excuse me, verse 1 begins. Therefore, that points back to verses 10 and 12 of the previous in which Paul reminds his readers that God alone is qualified and has the authority to judge the minds and hearts of His people. I am guilty. I am guilty of trying to move one step beyond what I see and determine what the person's motive is. Well, I know he did that and it's a good thing, but it was probably for this reason or that. We try to, we try to read their minds. And you see, judgment is God's exclusive prerogative. Now, Jesus did say in the Sermon on the Mount, we must not pass judgment on another. Go read Matthew 7. But remember, he's talking about not the things that are plainly forget, forbidden by God. He's talking about condemning. He's not talking about uh, the scruples that are har harbored by earnest but weak Believers, he's talking about we're not to be condemning people. We are to condone. We aren't to condone, I mean. We have to be discerning, and that's a form of judgment. But how do we do it? Oh, wrong side. I'm so used to my Bible being over here. This is how we do it. 
I'm not judging somebody if I see them living in an adulterous relationship with somebody else and I say to them, you know, the Bible says do not commit adultery. That's not judging. That's confronting by means of God's Word. I'm not judging if somebody says something that is known to be false. And I say, you know, as Christians, we're not to be lying. That's not judging. That's, I'm not saying because you said that, you're going to hell. That would be condemning. I'm just confronting by means of God's Word. And we are to be doing that as Christians. From Paul's day to ours, though, it's the wrongful judgment that have been the major cause of disrespect, disharmony, and disunity in the church. People who are living one way, but pointing their fingers at people for the things that they're not doing. That's so easy. There are some things that if you said, let's go do this, it wouldn't be any temptation to me. Somebody could stand right here with drugs and needles all day long. They could even have cash with it and say, hey, do these drugs, man. It'll make you feel good. That would be no temptation at all for me. Not at all. Not one bit. But for me to say to them, wow, you got that temptation? That's horrible. When I have the temptation, hear me, because I'm struggling again with it. I got to get going. I got to get this paper done. Man, I've eaten more food this week than I ate for six months, I think. <laughs> you see, each of us have our own ways that we are tempted. The devil tempted Satan to turn stones into bread. That was a temptation for him because he could have done that. And if he would have done it, there was nobody in that countryside who wouldn't have followed him because they were hungry and poor. Satan could tempt me all day to turn stones into bread. I said, but I would have to tell him the best thing I can do is turn them into bouncing rocks on top of the water maybe. Past judgment on one another causes a lot of problems. But that's not all he said. He also said, and he goes on, verse 14 and 15, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. But he doesn't stop there. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. You see, for us to be living for one another means that we're not going to be grieving or devastating each other. We need to be building other people up. Not offending them. And as far as non-sinful things are concerned, Paul says, I know and I'm persuaded, I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in and of itself. He wasn't standing 
I mean, excuse me, he wasn't stating a personal opinion or preference about those things, but he was persuaded, he was convinced in the Lord Jesus. He knew it by divine revelation. The strong Christian is therefore entirely right in their conviction that they're at liberty to enjoy anything the Lord does not declare to be sinful. I mean, you can go to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 5. You can go to Titus chapter 1, verse 15. The weak Christian, on the other hand, is wrong in their understanding about some of those things, but they're not wrong in the sense of being heretical or immoral. So often, if there isn't even a thou shalt not, so often we want to say, wow, that's not how a Christian should live. Christians shouldn't be doing that. Well, maybe they shouldn't. But again, show me in the Bible. Don't tell me your opinion. Because most of the time, to be honest, I love y'all. But most of the time, when it has to do with God's Word, if it doesn't agree with God's Word, I don't care what your opinion is. This trumps your opinion. So let's read on. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. You see, did you hear what he said? He said, let's pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And what he's talking about there is the fact that we don't need to be losing our witness by doing something that is questionable. I hear people all the time say, well, what's the least I have to do to be a Christian? How close to the cliff do you want to stand without falling off? You see, how much better is it to say, how close to the cross can I get? Not, what all can I do and God will still accept me, God will still forgive me. God will forgive uh, anything and everything except blaspheming the Holy Spirit according to the Bible. But I don't want to take a chance that the very last day of my life I forget and I don't say, oh Lord, I had one more thing I need to ask you for forgiveness for. When I, I could have easily taken care of it by just striving to live closer to the cross. You know, it is possible to abuse our liberty. That's why Paul says, don't let what you regard for yourself as a good thing be spoken of as evil. There are a few things, very few things that I don't dislike any more than the tyranny of the weaker brother. When somebody says, well, you shouldn't be doing that, you might cause me to stub, 
stumble. And the Bible says, don't cause anybody to stumble. Really? You're tempted to do what you're telling me not to do? Well, no, then I'm not causing you to stumble. That's just your attempt to control my behavior by your opinions about what's right and wrong. Show me in the Bible that it says it's wrong and I'll quit doing it. And although it brings much blessing and enjoyment to those who understand and exercise it properly, properly, Christian liberty is not simply for our behalf and our benefit. It's certainly not for our selfish abuse. So, he moves on. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Do you understand what Paul is saying in that setting? Because they had a whole list of things that are unclean and you shouldn't eat. When I was a little kid, we lived down in southwestern Illinois. And Abby Nelson owned the fish market. And you know, I was there one day as a five-year-old. This is, I can remember this. I was there at the fish market one day with Abby as a five-year-old. And I remember one of those ladies coming into the fish market and saying, Abby Nelson, you shouldn't be selling catfish because it's just a scavenger and it does all that stuff from the bottom of the water and it just gets bad things to people. Really? Yeah, that's true. They do. But if you don't want to see somebody eat catfish, don't go with me to the post on Friday night because there's a lot of times I eat catfish. Was it unclean in the Old Testament under their, their standards? Yes, it was. And those people had all of those things that were unclean. And Paul is saying, don't for the sake of food destroy the work of God. In other words, I don't know where Marty and Diane are on this. So I can use them as an example. If Marty and Diane thought it was sinful to eat catfish, I would never eat a bite of catfish in their presence. I wouldn't do it. There's too many other things to eat. That's why he says the principle is we don't need... Um, let me read on first before I do that. It's not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. What he's saying is, don't be tearing down God's work over non-essentials. Have you heard about any churches that divided because of the color of the carpet? I know of two. People, a whole group of people left. We don't need that carpet in there. It makes it look like a dance hall. That's the exact words that one of them said. 
I think his wife put him up to it. But Do you know of a church that has divided because of whether or not they use praise hymns or the traditional music? Yeah, I do. I do. Buddy Staten, by the way, needs our prayers. If you don't know who Buddy Staten is, Nofel Staten, he taught at Lincoln for several years. He's 88 years old. He's in the hospital as of Friday and he's struggling. I heard Buddy at the North American Christian Convention one day say, I don't like when there's loud clashing drums and there's electric guitars playing harsh notes. I don't like it. Boy, all the group that was there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then he paused and everything got quiet. And he said, but you know what? My grandchildren do and I love them. So I'll sit and listen to loud clashing drums and loud PA systems with my grandchildren smiling because I know that I am not turning them away by my harsh, nasty, negative attitudes. Don't be tearing down God's work over things that are non-essential. Our responsibility, says in verse 19, is to build up, not to tear down. So how does it close? The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. We're going to come back to that because it's not what you think it's saying. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Sound familiar, Liz? I, I did a paper for Liz when her employment was trying to force her to be vaccinated. And I said, don't tell me that there's not a religious reason for things, because if somebody believes something is not living in faith and they do it, you're just requiring them to sin. And this is what Paul is talking about when he says the faith that you have, keep that between yourself and God. In other words, don't let anybody pull it away. Hold on to it. You think something's wrong? Don't do it. Because if you do it, even if it's not in a list of sins, you sin by doing it. Well, I'm passed out of time. But in 22 to 23, what he's saying is, don't flaunt your freedom. Don't scorn the freedom of other people. You live in what you know to be obedience to God's Word. Obedience to God's Word. You see... Anything, anything, whatever it might be, 
anything if it's done without conviction that God has approved it is by definition sin. So, if I believe that it's wrong and sinful to eat hamburger, and I eat hamburger, I'm sinning. We have these archaic notions about sin. Sin is not a list of do's and don'ts. Sin is a problem with your relationship between you and God. And whatever is causing you relationship problems with God is sin. So here's my challenge. We need to understand the principle of unity. The principle of unity is love. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But what? In all things, love. That great 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Love is. Love doesn't. And then he concludes by saying, faith, hope, and love. Why? We're saved by faith, aren't we? And aren't we called to give an account of the hope that we have? Pretty biggies. And Paul's not saying they're not biggies. But he says faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. I would rather sit beside somebody who is struggling with all kinds of things that I think are sinful, who loves people and is loving God and trying to do better than to sit by somebody who pretty much has it all together, but they're nasty. They're belligerent. They're always pointing fingers. They're always whispering, making accusations. The greatest of these is love. Let's pray.